Thank you for listening to our church podcast, where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m., for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. Luke 18, verses 18 through 30 is what we'll be reading this morning. Uh, Luke chapter 18, beginning with verse 18, if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. We'll be reading Luke 18, beginning in verse 18. A ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said, "We See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Father, we ask now that you would bless us and give us insight and wisdom as we seek to study scripture this morning. Uh, Help us to understand this text and to apply it to our own lives uh, as the Holy Spirit gives us leading. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We are continuing our journey with Jesus through the Gospel of Luke, and last week we began to look at the story of the rich young ruler uh, who meets Jesus. We started with the account where this ruler comes uh, running to Jesus, falls at his feet, and he asks the most important question that he could, uh, what do I have to do to have eternal life? Uh, He came to the right person asking the right question, and yet many people today would have to conclude that Jesus gave him the wrong answer. If you were to ask a Christian today, what do I have to do to have eternal life? You may get a few different answers. Uh, Some people might say that you just have to believe Jesus died for your sins and rose again, and then you're you're saved. You're a Christian now. Uh, Others would say, repeat this prayer after me, and your sins will be forgiven. Others might suggest getting baptized to have eternal life. But none of them are likely to say to you, uh, keep the commandments and also give away all of your money and possessions and follow Jesus. The answer that Jesus gives seems to suggest that we earn eternal life by our works. So the question is, what is going on here? Why does Jesus give him this answer? We're going to focus our attention this morning on verses 22 and following. We've already really covered verses 18 to 21, where the man addressed Jesus as good teacher. And Jesus responds with, what do you mean good? Uh, No one is good but God alone. And so right from the start, Jesus isn't giving straightforward answers to this man. He's trying to get him to think. And the first thing he wants him to realize is his sin. No one is good but God alone. All of us fall short of his standard of perfection, and as sinners, we stand in need of forgiveness. 
But this rich ruler did not see himself that way. He thought of himself as a good person. Uh, and so when Jesus pressed the matter by bringing up the Ten Commandments, <clears throat> the ruler claimed that he had kept them all throughout his life. He was completely blind to any sin in his life, and thus he was blind to his need of repentance. But then Jesus pushed him even more by confronting his love of money. And that's why he tells him to sell all that he has and come follow me in order to have eternal life. Uh, no one else in Scripture, by the way, is ever told to do this. Uh, there are plenty of examples of godly people who were wealthy. Uh, people like Abraham or Job, for example. Neither of them was told to give up their money. And so here, Jesus is confronting what he knew was an idol of this man's heart. And it was proved by his response. The ruler walks away sad because he is unwilling to part with his money. Riches held a higher place than Jesus in this man's life. And so the first principle that we must learn from the story of the rich young ruler is the necessity of understanding our fallen condition. Before we can be brought to repentance, which leads to forgiveness and eternal life, we must see ourselves the way that God sees us, as sinners in need of grace. We are not good people that can earn God's favor by our works. Rather, we fall infinitely short of God's standard of goodness, and thus we need an alien righteousness. This is why Jesus came and lived that perfect life on our behalf, and then he died in our place. He took our sins on the cross, and now he offers us his righteousness. And so the question now is, what does one have to do to have the righteousness of Jesus applied to us? Uh, is it simply a matter of believing the gospel? Uh, is it a prayer that you pray? Is it something else? Or is Jesus trying to tell us here that we have to give away all of our money in order to have eternal life? The answer to this question is both simple and impossible. Uh, it's simple in that it can be summed up in two words, faith and repentance. Jesus' ministry summarized this in Mark 1. This is where uh, Mark basically gives us a summary of his preaching. Mark 1, beginning of verse 14, says, After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Uh, this is what we must do to have eternal life. This is all we must do. And there is no other way. We're going to trace this out uh, through scripture this morning, and I'll show you where I'm getting that. But those are the two requirements of a person who wants to be forgiven of all their sins and given eternal life. Faith and repentance. It's simple, and yet it's also impossible. And the more we'll, uh, you understand what is involved in these two simple concepts, the more you'll see the impossibility of it. But we'll get there later. Let's start with the less debated of the two, faith. Uh, the New Testament is perfectly clear that you must place your faith in Jesus to be saved. Let's look at a few scriptures. Galatians 2, verse 16, Paul writes, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, the word justified is a very important term throughout the New Testament. It means declared righteous. So someone who is justified is someone that God has declared to be righteous. In other words, their sins have been wiped away. Uh, the charges dropped. They are now able to stand righteous before God. Because, of course, the righteousness of Christ has been applied to them. And Paul makes it very clear in that text that the only way that that happens is by faith in Christ. It's not by works of the law. In other words, you can't keep the Old Testament laws and earn 
that status of righteous before God. It is impossible. All of us are sinners. All of us violate God's laws. And so the only way that we can receive the righteousness of Christ is by faith. Romans 3 verse 23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Okay, so verse 23 says, We're all sinners. Verse 24, Jesus died on the cross to bear that punishment we deserve for our sins. And verse 25, how we receive that gift of grace is through faith. So clearly, whatever else we can say about salvation, it must involve faith. Now, we need to stop at this point and ask for a definition. Uh, what does it mean to receive salvation by faith? Certainly, it includes uh, believing the gospel, believing the facts of the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins and rose again to save us. That seems clear. Uh, in a text like 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, I would remind you, brethren, uh, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, by uh, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then the next two verses defines what that gospel is, that we have to hold fast to and believe in order to be saved. Verse 3, <clears throat> I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So faith involves believing the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection for our sins. <clears throat> but the word faith means more than merely believing that something is true. Remember we mentioned the text in James last week, the demons even believe that, right? Uh, the, the devil knows that Jesus died and rose again. So that, that clearly isn't enough to make you a Christian. So, faith means not only believing the facts of the gospel are true, but placing your trust in Christ. It is entrusting yourself to Jesus and his work on the cross to save you. Uh, you might believe, for instance, that a parachute will work. You might mentally think to yourself, yeah, that the science seems to work there. But when you jump out of the airplane with the parachute, now you're really placing your faith in that parachute. It's more than mentally saying, yes, I believe that. It's actually entrusting yourself to it and depending on it. And so faith in Christ means I am trusting in Jesus' work on the cross for my justification. I recognize I cannot earn God's grace on my own. My works fall infinitely short. And so I'm trusting in him for my salvation. That is faith. Next, let's talk about repentance. Does one need to repent to be saved? Uh, Believe it or not, in Christianity, this has become controversial, and it really shouldn't be. Jesus made this abundantly clear. Uh, Luke 13, verse 5, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Uh, repentance is just as necessary for salvation as faith is. Again, let's make sure we define our terms biblically. What is repentance? Uh, so many texts we could go to, to to show this, but we'll look at just a handful here. First of all, repentance is a change of heart. Uh, it is turning from our sin. Okay, listen to the words of God in, in prophet Ezekiel, to the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 18. He says, the soul who sins <clears throat> shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Okay, so the soul that sins will die. All of us are sinners, and all of us will face God's judgment because of our sin. Verse 21, but... If a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he's committed and keeps my, all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. 
he shall not die. That is repentance, turning from your sinful ways. Verse 22, none of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. So because of his repentance, because of his turning from that sin, all that past wickedness in his life will be completely forgotten, God says. Verse 23, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? So repentance involves turning from sin. But it's more than that. It's not merely turning from our sins and just uh, turning over a new leaf, doing good things now. No, it's turning to God. Isaiah 55, verse 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So forsaking your sin, turning to the Lord, that is biblical repentance. And in the New Testament, repentance is spelled out as uh, this, that very same change of heart, turning from sin and submitting our lives to Christ as our Lord and Master. Uh, Romans 10, verse 9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So you see then, salvation includes both belief in the heart, that's, that's uh, faith, what we talked about a moment ago, and confessing Jesus as Lord, which would be repentance. Becoming a Christian means Jesus is your Lord. You now live uh, from this point forward for him. He's your king. Uh, he is the Lord of your heart and life. And it's not merely enough to call yourself a Christian or to call Jesus your Lord. It's not just a, an affirmation of your mouth. Jesus himself said in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So there's, it's not just a matter of saying, yes, I'm a Christian, and now you're a part of God's kingdom. No. Repentance is turning from sin to serve and follow Jesus. Perhaps no one in Scripture exemplified this change of heart more clearly than the Apostle Paul. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, uh, Paul started off traveling around from town to town imprisoning Christians. He hated Christianity. He believed it was a false religion. And so he went from town to town, uh, imprisoning Christians wherever he could find them. And he gives his testimony of conversion in Acts 22, where he says, I persecuted this way to death, uh, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. As the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness, from them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were, who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So he's headed to Damascus for the purpose of arresting Christians and bringing them back to Jerusalem in chains. And verse 6 says, As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? He said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now, those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? The Lord said, uh, said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. This is what repentance looks like. Uh, he goes from persecuting Christianity to saying, what will you have me to do, Lord? That's a change of heart. That is a, the heart of a repentant person. And Paul spent the rest of his life, of course, spreading the gospel of Jesus, planting churches, and even writing books of our Bible. In Acts 26, he says, uh, recounting the story again to King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, 
but, decla- but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. And so he spent the rest of his life telling others to repent and turn to God. So to answer the question, what is required to have eternal life? What do we have to do to receive forgiveness from God? The answer, according to Scripture, is repent and believe. We must believe the gospel of Jesus. We must place our faith in him alone to save us, and we must repent, turning from our sins to live for Christ. Paul said in Acts 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you Anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and the Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So you see, again, those two elements of a saving response to the gospel, repentance and faith, faith in Christ, repentance toward God. Stated another way in Hebrews 6, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Uh, This is the foundational truth of Christianity, repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Okay, so those are the two elements of conversion. Now, Scripture does at times refer to someone who is saved by one of these terms and not the other. But that doesn't mean that both are not required. Okay, it simply means the other is implied. So, for example, when Paul writes in Romans 1.16 that the gospel is the power of God to everyone who believes— That doesn't mean that they just believed and didn't repent. Uh, Same thing in Luke 15.10, when Jesus says there's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. It doesn't mean they repented without faith. Uh, It is implied that both are there, both are present in the person. We are required to believe the gospel and to repent. John 3, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So it's both, believing the Son and obeying the Son not one or the other. Sometimes one is emphasized in a certain passage of Scripture more than the others. Uh, To people who were not convinced, for instance, that Jesus was the Son of God, that he was the Messiah sent from heaven, uh, to them the need for faith was emphasized. For those who clearly did believe that Jesus uh, was the Messiah sent to redeem us from our sins, but maybe they were holding on to sin in their life or selfish desires instead of submitting their lives to Christ, to them repentance is emphasized. This is why the gospel throughout the New Testament is given slightly differently depending on who's being talked to. Uh, Let me show you what I mean by this. Peter, on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, he's preaching to the Jewish uh, people there in Jerusalem, and he concludes his sermon by saying, Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Notice verse 37, When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Peter did not say to them, What you have to do is believe Jesus died and rose again. Well, why? Because clearly they did believe it. He had just preached that sermon, and it says they were convicted, and they received it by faith. Now they needed to be told, Repent, turn from your sin, and turn to Christ. And so that was Peter's response to their question. So when it comes to the rich young ruler in our text, he is a picture of really the polar opposite of repentance. As we saw last week, he would not turn from his sin because he didn't think he had any. 
And then Jesus calls him to commit his life to Jesus as Lord, and he refuses because that would involve surrendering his wealth to follow Christ. He was holding on to his possessions and money. Repentance means submitting to Christ's rule over your life, giving everything you have and everything you are to him and asking like Paul, Lord, what will you have me to do? Whatever area of your life you are unwilling to give to Christ, that is what you need to repent of to be saved. And for this man, he likely would have done a lot of things that Jesus asked him to do. If Jesus told him uh, to be saved, go to the temple every day and pray, there's no doubt this man would have done it. But not money, not giving up his wealth and possessions. That area was off limits to Jesus' lordship. So does Jesus require us to sell all of our possessions, to give away all of our money in order to be saved? Uh, certainly, that is not required for everyone. One reason we know that is Luke 19, a text we'll be studying in a few weeks here in the very next chapter. Jesus goes to meet Zacchaeus. Uh, Zacchaeus was one that was known to be, uh, have become wealthy by ripping people off. He was one of those tax collectors, uh, those corrupt people that we've talked about many times in the past. So when Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' house in verse 7 of Luke 19, the people, when they saw this, that, that he was going with him to his house, they grumbled, saying he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. So Zacchaeus repented. Uh, he's turning from his sinful ways. Notice he calls Jesus Lord. And he says, I'm going to give away uh, half of my possessions to the poor. And Jesus says, Today salvation has come to this house. In other words, he viewed that as Zacchaeus giving evidence of, a, of conversion. Uh, this was repentance. And yet notice, he didn't give up all of his wealth, only half. Uh, see, the percentage really isn't the issue. The issue is the heart. If Jesus had told him to give more away, I believe he would have, because he was ready to live for Christ no matter the cost. Notice in our text, the rich young ruler calls Jesus good teacher. Zacchaeus calls Jesus Lord. Now, that's the difference in their heart posture toward Christ. The rich ruler sees Jesus as a good guy, uh, but he's not ready to lay his life down in service to him. Repentance means that Jesus rules over all of our lives, including our money. And uh, next week, we're going to talk more about what that looks like for each one of us as it uh, relates to our finances. Save that, those questions for next week. Let's wrap up this morning looking down at the last section of the text, beginning in verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have, distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. By the way, those last three words are crucial to what he's saying. This isn't just about giving away your money uh, for the sake of charity. That's how you gain eternal life. No, the operative words are, come follow me. He was calling him to a life of discipleship. Verse 23, when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's hard for them to uh, relinquish control of their life to Jesus. Again, repentance means I'm giving my life to Christ. And if giving your life to Christ means also surrendering you know, your career, your possessions, your wealth to him, that's difficult for a rich person to do. It's also difficult for a rich person even to recognize their need of a savior. Most, most rich people think, well, I'm doing just fine. And so yielding their life in service to Jesus is something that most people with wealth and status are simply unwilling to do. And so he says it is difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 25, 
It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, this is one of those sayings of Jesus that many have tried to explain away. Uh, one theory that was presented was that the Greek word for camel is really close to the Greek word for rope. And so maybe it's a typo. Uh, maybe it originally said, uh, you know, it's easier for a rope to go through the eye of a needle. Well, there's really no evidence for this at all. Uh, and it would seem odd that multiple gospel writers would make the same error, the same typo in the same spot, uh, and especially to make the type, the, a typo that would make the text really hard, uh, a camel as opposed to a rope. So there really is no doubt that camel is the original wording here. Another way that some people have explained this verse away is that supposedly there was a gate in Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle, and it was a short little gate. And so while it was hard for a camel to fit through, and it wasn't impossible, the camel would just have to have nothing on its back, and it had to get down on his little camel knees and squeeze himself through that little gate. And so they would say that the point here is a rich person can be saved. They just have to set aside their wealth and possessions, humble themselves uh, in order to get into the kingdom. And I say to that, nonsense. Uh, there is zero evidence that this gate ever existed. And further, it would defeat the obvious point Jesus is making. He's not saying it's difficult, it's just hard. No, he's saying it's impossible. It is absolutely impossible for rich people to enter the kingdom of God, just as impossible as a camel fitting through a little needle. And so the whole point here is that it cannot happen, which is why those who heard Jesus say this were astounded. Uh, they didn't say, oh, I know what he's talking about. He's talking about the gate. No, no, no. They said in verse 26, who then can be saved? Uh, they're amazed at this thing Jesus has just said, that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. You're saying rich people can't be saved? Rich people can't become a part of God's kingdom? I can imagine people who are watching this conversation probably becoming quite frustrated with Jesus at this point. I mean, here he had a great prospect, uh, this rich ruler that wanted to have eternal life. And Jesus just, just about made it impossible for him. He says, keep all of the commandments, sell all of your possessions, give everything away and follow me. Now, that's not a very appealing evangelistic strategy. I mean, if you're, if you're trying to grow a church or grow a following, that seems like a hard sell. Most of us, if someone came to us asking this question, apparently ready to do whatever is needed to have eternal life, uh, this is when we'd lead them through a quick prayer, right? But Jesus made it hard to follow him. When people came asking him, what do I have to do to be a Christian? He said to them, leave everything behind. Lay your life down for me. And if you're not willing to do that, you can't be my disciple. If you're unwilling to lose your life, you won't find it. And so Jesus repeatedly in the Gospel of Luke says, count the cost and don't follow me unless you're all in. Jesus didn't water it down. He didn't make it easy to become a Christian. And we shouldn't either. And if you're thinking to yourself, if that's what's required for entrance into the kingdom, nobody's going to come. I mean, who's going to sign on to this? That's what the disciples are asking. Who then can be saved? You're saying it, it requires all of this surrender, giving up everything to serve Jesus as Lord. Who's going to do that? And Jesus says, no one, especially not a rich guy like this. It is like trying to squeeze a camel through the eye of a needle. It's not going to happen. It's impossible. But then verse 27, but he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. It is impossible that someone would leave everything behind and give their life in service to Jesus. And yet, millions of people around the world have done exactly that. Because God is really good at doing impossible things. Uh, one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is in Ezekiel 37. 
uh, where God tells a prophet to go preach to some dead bones. A very interesting text. Uh, starting in verse 1, the prophet Ezekiel says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the mid uh, middle of a valley. It was full of bones. Uh, this was likely a place where a battle had taken place you know, years prior, and so there were all these bones of the dead scattered throughout this valley. And here's Ezekiel wandering around this valley full of dead men's bones. And verse 2 says, He led me around the, among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Uh, what kind of a question is that? Can these bones live? Of course not. It's impossible. Verse 4, Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. Can you imagine Ezekiel uh, standing there talking to a bunch of bones, and yet he's doing what he's told. As I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet in exceedingly great army. So God says to Ezekiel, hey, Ezekiel, can these bones live? Of course not. That's impossible. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. Jesus entered a synagogue on a Sabbath day in Matthew 12, and there he sees a man who had a withered hand, meaning his hand was uh, shriveled up. He couldn't extend it. It was atrophied. Jesus says to him in verse 13, stretch out your hand. <laughs> stretch out your hand. Well, that's the, that's the whole problem. He can't. But Jesus tells him to, and suddenly he's able to extend it again. Because when Jesus gives the command to do the impossible, he also gives the ability to do the impossible. Jesus had a friend named Lazarus who lived in Bethany, just a couple of miles from Jerusalem, and his friend Lazarus died. John 11 tells us the story where Jesus came and he meets the, greeting, the, the grieving family. He comforts the sisters, Mary and Martha, that are distraught that their brother has died. And verse 38 tells us that Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb, and it was a cave, and there was a stone lay against it. He said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Uh, four days he's been dead. That means the, the body would be starting to decompose already. Verse 43, when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. He's calling to a dead corpse in the middle of a tomb and telling it to come out. Impossible. Verse 44, when the man who had died came out, his hands and feet were bound with uh, linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And so when Jesus calls out, Lazarus, come out, anybody watching that could have said, he's dead, he can't hear you, uh, nor can he respond, even if he could. And yet he did. And no one who saw this take place would say to Lazarus, wow, great job, man. Uh, it's amazing how you heard Jesus' command and obeyed it like that, even though you were dead. Uh, nobody would think that. 
They all looked at Jesus with amazement because it was clear that the power to obey the impossible command was given by Jesus. What is impossible with man is possible with God. And when a lost person hears the gospel of Jesus and the call to lay down your life in service to Christ as Lord, the ability to understand and respond to that savingly is not in him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, Paul is saying they're a natural person, an unsaved person. It's impossible for him to understand and accept the things of the Spirit of God. And yet it happens because verse 12, we have received not the Spirit of the Lord, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. The only way a person can repent and place their faith in Christ is if God opens their eyes to understand the gospel and if God turns their hearts to respond to it. Jeremiah 13, 23, Can the Ethiopian change his skin, or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. Can a leopard change his spots? It's sort of like asking, can a camel fit through the eye of a needle? It's just as likely that you sinners will turn from your sin and do good, God says. Just as likely that a rich person would choose to set aside his own life and success and serve Jesus Christ impossible. And yet God does the impossible. Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And so to the rich ruler, Jesus says, give up everything to follow me. And then Jesus says, that's impossible. He can't do that. But the same God who called out into the darkness and said, let there be light, can cause the light of the gospel to shine into a stubborn and sinful heart. The same God who called out to the man with a withered hand and said, stretch out your hand, calls to us and says, repent and believe. Give up your life to follow Jesus. And if you make the choice to do that, it is only because of the power of God. Apart from God's supernatural life-giving power, Lazarus would have remained dead. Those dry bones would have just laid there in the valley, and we would remain in our sin. May we never take credit ourselves. We were dead. He made us alive. We were blind. He opened our eyes. We were lost, and he found us. I heard a pastor tell a story of how he uh, lost his daughter one time. She was very young, maybe around five years old at the time, if I remember correctly. It was getting dark outside. He was searching around all over with his friends and family, and finally... He sees her in the distance, wandering around, looking very lost. Uh, He runs up to her, shines the flashlight on her, and the little girl turns to him and says, Daddy, I found you. Now, in reality, she never would have found her way to him. And that's exactly how it is when we come to Christ in faith and repentance. We were lost, and he found us. He shined the truth of his gospel in our hearts and caused us to be saved, because what is impossible with man is possible with God. Ephesians 2, verse 1. You were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, 
because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. What do we need to do to have eternal life? Repent and believe. The parable of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector uh, earlier in the chapter emphasized the need for faith. We cannot earn forgiveness by our good works like the Pharisee was trying to, but we must instead rest in God's grace to save us. And the rich young ruler shows us that we cannot be saved apart from repentance. doesn't matter what your life was before Jesus, all are welcome. But it does matter how your life is after Jesus. True salvation means a transformation will take place as you now are living for Christ and his kingdom. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So putting this all together then, uh, Luke 18 really is one of the best chapters in all of Scripture to show us what conversion to Christ looks like. We must recognize our sin, unlike the Pharisee in verse 11 or the rich ruler in verse 21. We must acknowledge our sin and our need of God's forgiveness like the tax collector in verse 13. We must come in humility with the faith of a child, like in verse 17, to receive God's gift of salvation. And we must come with a heart of full surrender. Uh, this is what the rich ruler lacked. This is why he left unconverted. He was unwilling to surrender his life to Christ. And so faith and repentance, this is how we are saved. Some people at the moment of conversion prayed a prayer, like the tax collector in the parable earlier in the chapter, some people were converted and they got baptized right away, like in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. Others were converted and they gave away their money, like Zacchaeus in Luke 19. None of that is what saved them. All of that was the evidence of a regenerated heart. The only way a person can be saved is by repentance and faith. All of these people that I just mentioned repented. They turned from their sins and gave their lives to Christ. They placed their faith in him for salvation and all of them gained eternal life as a result of that heart change, the change that God worked in each one of them. One final text to tie this together, Ephesians 2, beginning of verse 8. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Salvation is a gift of God's grace. He's the one who turns our hearts from sin to trust and serve him. We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.